Hello, everybody. I'm sitting here with a friend of the show and a frequent guest, as well as a former uh, person I was on a panel with, Mustache Mafia. How are you doing today? Uh, you know, I'm great. I'm really happy that we're here to talk about the uh, most important legal case in the country right now, which is the uh, Johnny Depp uh, Amber Heard uh, defamation trial. I have so many notes and so many thoughts about this. That's that's really uh, going to be an interesting conversation, man. Yeah, it seems to me that the media response, while it's certainly been explosive, is not giving uh, due due respect to the severity of what's going on right now. Um, this, this whole thing is particularly asinine. Um, but before we begin, I wanted to just say, like, to acknowledge, since we're going to be going over uh, Justice Alito's opinion, uh, albeit with just a portion of what he said, since it's 98 pages, uh, both of us do not face any of the direct react results of this case for obvious reasons uh so in terms of talking about abortion i think it's worth noting that neither you nor nor i will be suffering a, the serious consequences as a result of this case no I, I i don't have a uterus um at the moment uh or ever uh and i don't think you do either so uh you're right we we might not be directly impacted by this but uh the injury to one is an injury to all in terms of uh, basic human rights, which is what is being stripped away in this decision. Uh, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, uh, down the line in this discussion, but this decision is opening up uh, civil liberties issues that you and I will face uh, down the line as the right wing uh, gets more and more aggressive as they face more and more success. And and I really do think that needs to be like brought up over and over again like I, on the one hand i do sometimes see a lot of people talking about this and they t have some rather milk toast takes or they're not really uh representing the severity of what's going on particularly as it relates to the health risks to women who will have to carry a child that may have been forced upon them or they just do cannot physically have in, in a manner that's safe to them uh, but also i think a lot of the issues we've seen is that People feel like this is a controversial issue when they should be talking about it in terms of helping their fellow citizens and their rights. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it, it's so unprecedented, uh, and we should probably get into the specifics of the decision after I say this, but um, it's so unprecedented that we're basically having a Supreme Court uh, roll back rights 50 years, essentially, to pre-Roe versus Wade levels. Uh, and then I'm sure you've read the decision. I've read most of it, uh, most of it that could stomach. Uh, and we'll, we'll get into the specifics of that now. But that's that's an unprecedented thing that we're facing right now with uh, a court that is radically far to the right of anything that's uh, existed in my lifetime or, frankly, my parents' lifetimes. And it's, it's something that we're going to have to address uh, immediately in uh, the U.S. government in order to kind of rectify this before it goes even farther than it already has. And it's already gone too far. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think to summarize the decision, yeah. uh, or at least the draft decision, even though we already know that they're <clears throat> kind of on the same path here, it, the the argument by Justice Alito, Barrett, and uh, several the majority of the court apparently, uh, is that the, the cases of uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey and Roe v. Wade are not successful constitu appropriate constitutional law because they do not involve rights explicitly stated or enumerated in the Constitution of the United States, and they also see, he also seems to imply that it is a political question reserved for the legislatures of the United States government, whether it's federal or statewide. Um, 
this approach has seemed to be like uh, used a lot, not just in terms of how people argue against Planned Parenthood v. Casey or Roe, but also how we talk about things like the right to privacy uh, or Burgerfell and much more, many more cases because they deal with this idea of rights that aren't were previously not recognized uh, by generations before us. Right, specifically, uh, and especially in the last 20 or so years, uh, we've had a court that used the due process clause of the 14th Amendment in order to uh, protect uh, most notably uh, LGBTQ people. Uh, notably, you mentioned Obergefell v. Uh, Hodges, I believe this is the decision, mm -hmm. uh, which legalized same-sex marriage. Um, and Texas versus, oh, what was the Texas case that um, legalized? Uh, Texas versus Lawrence, Lawrence versus Texas, uh, which legalized um, same-sex conduct because that actually used to be illegal in several states in this country, which is absolutely insane to think about in the United States of America. But um, we're seeing the court now roll back those protections. So they've rolled back uh, abortion protections now with uh, this ruling, but they've also established a precedent to go after anything that's done with the due process clause, such as Obergefell or uh, Lawrence versus Texas or Griswold versus Connecticut, which is the reason that you can buy um, contraception as an unmarried person, uh, which is something that I'm very happy that I can do as an unmarried person uh, because I don't wanna have to deal with the other implications of the other Supreme Court cases, which are being overthrown now. But uh, we're seeing this uh, establish a precedent for this court going forward to roll back even more rights. So th this is a, a serious, serious thing that has happened. And I think something that's really notable uh, before we go on is to note that uh, in my personal opinion, this is not a legitimate Supreme Court that we have right now. We have multiple justices on the court that are frankly unfit to serve and should not be serving um, or who were nominated in a very kind of uh, underhanded way. We have uh, Justice Thomas, who signed on to this, and who is responsible for a lot of originalist uh, Supreme Court uh, thinking over the years. We'll get into what originalism is in a moment. Uh, who takes bribes publicly through his wife, who's a lobbyist, who's paid to lobby him, which is not seemly or legal. Um, we have Brett Kavanaugh, who committed horrific crimes before he was a Supreme Court justice, which has been documented pretty thoroughly. Uh, and he perjured himself multiple times, which is a serious crime before Congress during his confirmation hearing. Uh, we have Justice Amy Coney Barrett, uh, who's a religious fanatic who was involved in the Brooks Brothers riots in the 2000s. We have Supreme Court um, Chief Justice uh, Roberts, who was also involved in the Brooks Brothers riots, uh, which were kind of, uh, if you're not familiar with those, look them up. It's a crazy story, but it was part of the way that- so was Roger Republican Stone. Roger Stone yeah. was involved as well. Roger Stone was involved as well. Exactly. It was part of the way that the Republican Party basically stole the 2000 election um, here in my home state of Florida. You're welcome, America, for the Bush administration. Uh, but yeah, we, that's our little gift that keeps on giving to y'all. Um, so we have a, a Supreme Court that is, is demonstrably corrupt and has justices that are not fit to serve on it, rolling back people's rights. Uh, and we have a, a, a party in Washington, uh, the Democratic Party, that controls theoretically all three branches of government at the moment that is not doing enough to counteract this. Uh, tomorrow morning, in theory, um, if you could actually get Congress to meet on a Saturday, which would require such an act of God that I don't think it's actually possible. Uh, but if you could get Congress to meet on a Saturday, you could theoretically pass a law expanding the Supreme Court and 
pack the court with justices that would overrule this decision and not have it um, actually go into effect because it hasn't gone into effect yet. You could also have uh, the Congress tomorrow morning, uh, again, if you could actually get them to meet on a Saturday, which is really difficult if you know anything about Congress, you could also have them codify Roe, uh, Roe versus Wade, and codify a woman's right to choose and to have her right to privacy in this country. That being said, if we did that, um, we run into an issue where it seems increasingly likely in 2022 that the Republicans will take back both houses of Congress, and there's a non-zero chance that they'll take the White House in 2024 or 2028. And if that happens, you could see a federal ban on abortion where even blue states that are going to pass laws that protect a woman's basic human rights at this point, um, you'll see a federal ban on abortion override that. So what we're in is a very precarious moment that I don't know if we um, have the leadership right now to actually kind of meet this challenge. So there's a lot to unpack there. So the first yeah, thing I think we need to address is the the fundamentally unfit nature of several justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, mm -hmm. In the case of Clarence Thomas and uh, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, both of these men are accused of sexual misconduct. One of them was accused of rape for, uh, and they were the women who accused them were not really hurt. Uh, and I do, I do think that really does go into not only how they are dealing with abortion, because they, their understanding of a woman's right to her own body is obviously a suspect. But also I think it does go to show that this is fundamentally a political court. Uh, a lot of times people are pretty hesitant to say this court is political uh, because they want to believe that the legitimacy of the court is inherent and that people will follow the law. But in the case of the people supporting Justice Thomas and and Justice Kavanaugh, and by extension, Amy Coney Barrett for her own uh, unethical issues. Uh, there's they they did it because they knew what they, these these justices would want to see, and that's something that I think really needs to be emphasized over and over again. These people were put on the court not because they were the best, not because they were the most qualified, not because they they understood the political implications of what they were doing, but because they fit a desired outcome. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the crazy thing is that in like the 50 or so years since Roe was decided, we've seen the right wing completely politicize the judicial branch of government. Uh, Mitch McConnell famously regards uh, confirming judges in the federal court and on the Supreme Court as his life's work. Uh, and meanwhile, on the left or on the liberal side of the aisle, we really have been kind of pretending that the judicial branch hasn't been politicized. And I think that's to our detriment. Because the, the right wing has the Federalist Society, has multiple donors, has whole rallies dedicated to just confirming judges. Whereas we celebrate every now and then when we confirm a historical uh, pick to the Supreme Court, uh, Sonia Sotomayor, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Sandra Day O'Connor, um, uh, Kentaji Brown Jackson are all really good appointments to the Supreme Court that should be celebrated. But we stopped kind of paying attention to the federal uh, judicial level, and we kind of stop paying attention to what the Supreme Court does and pretend yeah. that it's a lofty organization when we're not confirming somebody. And I think that's been to our detriment. Um, the fact that this decision hasn't been implemented yet, um, we have a couple months to kind of fix that. I don't know if we're going to. And when this decision, I think, comes down, it's going to take a number of years to kind of reverse it. And what we're going to have to do 
is we're going to have to build our own infrastructure kind of from scratch that has to rival those right-wing infrastructure groups. Uh, we have to kind of build our own federal society. We kind of have to uh, take back our state houses, obviously, but we also have to pressure our democratic representatives to confirm judges who match our values. We have to have a litmus test um, for anybody who's in public office that one, won't believe a person who's from a far right group that opposes abortion as a matter of ideology, that they're not going to overturn Roe versus Wade when they're being confirmed to the Supreme Court, which is so laughably naive that would make that person, in my opinion, unfit for public office. Uh, but also we have to create a democratic party where we won't put people in leadership who won't defend somebody's um, human right uh, to healthcare, which is yeah. what this is. And uh, just on that note, we should probably take a look at the actual law that was the basis of the lawsuit. Uh, yes. So this was the Mississippi Gestational Age Act. And if, uh, real quick, I'll just read the, the text that is kind of the basis of much of this lawsuit. Uh, quote, except in a medical emergency or in the case of a severe fetal abnormality, a person shall not intentionally or knowingly perform or induce an abortion of an unborn human being if the problem gestational age of the unborn human being has been determined to be greater than 15 weeks, unquote. Uh, there's a lot of problems with that. And I think the first thing I brought up when we were in the chat earlier is the fundamental inability to uh, define fetal abnormality and to what extent that's limited. Um, a while back, I saw some pro-lifers saying that eptopic pregnancies do not justify abortion. Uh, so if somebody who is interpreting this law held that same view, would fetal abnormality not apply to something as severe as an ectopic pregnancy? Um, that That's a big red flag for me. You, you know what's insane is that um, I, I was comparing this law to laws that existed in uh, nations that were theoretically hostile towards. So I, I looked up Iran, and in Iran, um, which is a right-wing theocracy, uh, abortion is legal if the mother's life in is in danger in the case of fetal abnormalities, which they actually did clearly define um, in the translation that I read, um, or produce difficulties uh, that would, uh, uh, if the mother could basically demonstrate that she wouldn't be able to take uh, care of the child at birth. So the law that you described is actually somewhat stricter than the law in Iran, which is a right-wing Islamic theocracy. And like that's the other thing. It seems to me that from the basis of this law, you would have fundamentally, firstly, a lot of women who would, wouldn't know they were pregnant until after the period where it was illegal for them to get an abortion. But then you've also got a, a, a situation where this law does not fully uh, give due respect to the life of the mother, which really undermines the very purpose of uh, the so-called pro-life movement. Well, you know, going going on that, uh, the United States, uh, this law comes out of Mississippi, and the United States has 55 states and territories. Um, it counts our, our uh, Northern Marianas, Guam, American Samoa, Puerto Rico, uh, Washington, D.C., um, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, in addition to the 50 states. And out of all of those territories, Mississippi is 52 out of 55 um, for infant mortality. Uh, and if, if you look at a map of infant mortality in this country, which, by the way, the United States, we have worse infant mortality than Cuba, which is crazy, uh, considering we're the wealthiest nation on the planet. Our healthcare system just stinks. Um, if you look at a map of this country, the states with um, the strictest abortion restrictions 
are the states that have the highest infant mortality rates. Yeah. So theoretically, if abortions um, go down after this uh, decision, this farce of a decision um, comes into force, what you're talking about is forcing women to carry pregnancies to term in places where they're most likely to actually experience fatal um, complications in their pregnancy, uh, in places in this country where people are disproportionately poor, which has a uh, negative effect on um, mortality, infant mortality, and then um, postpartum mortality, which, by the way, the United States is also pretty much number one in the developed world for because we don't have childcare. Uh, you're talking about, uh, I think it's about 50% of abortions go to people living below the federal poverty line, which, by the way, is about $15,000 a year in income, which is disgusting that anybody in this country is making under that. But uh, you're talking about people who are under the federal poverty line who are going to be basically forced into birth, theoretically, and then have a system that has no child care, no paternal leave, um, no maternal leave, uh, and very little in the way of social safety nets. So to say that these people are pro-life is absurd because they're just forcing people to give birth and then they don't care about the child afterwards. What this is and what this has been, and I think we need to acknowledge this as a people, um, has been an artificial wedge issue for the past 50 or so years of American politics. Uh, I know you're a Catholic. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm a very bad Catholic. Uh, G.K. Chesterton would be very upset with me if he if he ever met me. Um, but, uh, you know, this was considered kind of just a Catholics only issue for a long time. The evangelical um, sect of Christianity in this country greeted Roe with basically indifference or in some cases actual celebration. Um, many people uh, in Christian circles didn't actually consider a child to be alive until the quickening. Mm -hmm. um, which is not from a Highlander. It's actually a thing, which I learned about because of this decision. Um, it, it has been an artificially concocted right-wing issue um, to kind of impose uh, paternalistic control over women's bodies and to uh, rile up voters, essentially. And we're reaping the whirlwind of a few elites who wanted their tax cuts, riling up a base of people to clamp down on women's civil rights. And that is going to cause a lot of people to have some very real world material harm. And I think we yeah. need to acknowledge that. Well, and, and to further add to that, I think we also have to acknowledge the severe economic cost being thrust onto women who, especially if like they have to care for the child in the uh, environment you just described, but no social safety nets, no support for them to take care of themselves or the child. And also how that contributes to a, a cycle because if you're in, another thing that needs to be brought up again and again is poverty does to some extent increase the likelihood of a toxic home. So even if you the argument that Republicans make that well at least you have the child or you have it alive if they want to make that argument, it's still not living in a in an environment that is really any human should ever live in. It, it, it's an assault essentially which is, it sounds crazy when you say it out loud, but it, we're living through it and you can kind of see it. It's an assault on the sexual revolution at this point. Yes. Because as we mentioned earlier, by the same logic that's in this absurd decision, where you kind of roll back the um, due process clause, you're kind of assaulting Griswold versus Connecticut, even though Alito yeah. says he's not going to. Uh, I don't believe him. Uh, he also said he would respect Roe's uh, decided precedent in his confirmation hearing. Uh 
Griswold v. Connecticut allows you to have contraception. And already we're seeing a right-wing assault on that because they're not satisfied with abortion. Louisiana is now passing a law which would be struck down under Griswold um, charging women who use IUDs, which is a form of birth control if you're not familiar with it, uh, with murder. <laughs> like straight up murder for having an IUD. Uh, they're also passing a law which will uh, almost assuredly pass their state house uh, that gives full constitutional rights and protections to a um, egg at the moment of fertilization. So essentially they're completely banning abortion in that state. And including Louisiana, there's uh, 12 other states that actually have uh, trigger laws that are designed to ban abortion the moment that, that Roe is overturned. Those are uh, Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, uh, Louisiana, we mentioned Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming. So those those states are ready to go the instant that this um, decision goes through to completely basically ban abortion in their states. Uh, Florida has doesn't have a trigger law, but we have a pretty far right wing legislature and an outright fascist governor. So I'm pretty sure we're going to experience that uh, pretty soon. Uh, and again, I mentioned this earlier, but if the Republicans gain both houses of Congress and if they get a president who won't veto it, you're going to see a federal abortion ban. So if you live in a blue state and you think that this isn't going to affect you because you can um, protect, uh, depend on the protection of your rational government, essentially, uh, a federal abortion ban will override the laws in those blue states. And you will not see the state's rights heavy Supreme Court strike that down because what Connor said is absolutely correct. This is 100 percent a political move and, and and to just add to that because that's the other reason i wanted to talk about it even though i understand the distinctions and experiences uh yeah. is this the argument by justice alito that this has, has no effect on um on contraception is kind of nonsense because even though he argues that this the issue of abortion involves is distinct because it involves a potential life as he quotes it that argument can just as easily be made for plan b because a lot of pro-lifers believe plan b interferes with conception so again somebody can extrapolate that to contraceptive issues yeah. and that that to me is like there is very little distinction between what the court is saying here in terms of the due process clause of the 14th amendment and how that protects the right to privacy. Because again, Roe did not just say abortion is a right. They said the right to privacy protects abortion. That's an important distinction. The attack on the right to privacy is also an attack on every other issue in, and I, I think that needs to be hammered home again and again and again. Um, but to move towards the one argument you and I were both very, very annoyed with, which mm -hmm. is the Clarence Thomas argument uh, that he snuck in there in the footnotes. Uh, I just want to get your reaction to that first, and then we can kind of move into that a little more. Yeah, well, why don't you summarize it for the audience? So for those who are familiar with what the Clarence Thomas argument is, uh, conservatives, particularly pro-life conservatives, will point to Margaret Sanger and the eugenics movement and how it kind of intersected with the early Planned Parenthood uh, founding and they they argue that abortion constitutes modern day eugenics even though the motivations and reasons behind them are completely different um and so uh justice alito included in a footnote by the way that he doesn't mention african americans beyond that footnote uh to basically argue that there are some people out there who 
believe that, you know, abortion is eugenics. And apparently if I, if he just thought that required a footnote instead of addressing it directly, but we'll get into that. It's deeply ironic that they say that. And then the entire right wing for the past few years has been uh, chomping at the bit to actually defend modern eugenicists because the same people who make that argument will then jump to the defense of like uh, Pinker or like Bo Weingard or, you know, your Sam Harris or your, um, I was going to say Arthur Laffer, but um, I'm thinking of the other uh, curve, the bell curve guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember him. <laughs> if there's a curve and it's from a right winger, it's a bad thing. But there's two. Yeah. those are two different uh, bad curves. Uh, so, yeah, obviously, no, abortion isn't eugenics. Um, they're, they'll hammer home the fact that more African-American um, or people of color um, tend to have abortions. It's a function of poverty. It's not a function of something endemic to like um, uh, uh, race, and it's not some evil plot at Planned Parenthood to like wipe out people of color <laughs> through abortion, which is not happening. Uh, it, it's just it, it's an art. It's an argument that's absurd on its face. I will be extraordinarily nice. This is going to be my nice moment for the day, and say that this is the draft decision. So this is Alito basically putting all of his most insane takes in the majority decision to see what will stick and what the other justices will allow him to put in there. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the final decision will have some of these crazier things cut out. That being said, the effect of it is still the same. And the reasoning of this, um, the reasoning that led to this decision, uh, we're seeing a peek into what they wanted to keep secret, but what we're finding out now is the insane reasoning that they're using to come to these legal, excuse me, conclusions. Well, and I'd also add that I think it's important to note that the threat to black mothers, black women who either by lack of access to contraception or force uh, are more likely to get pregnant and then suffer horrible consequences, including death, than their white counterparts. The way in which our uh, medical system treats black women in terms of their their maternity care is significantly worse than white women. And there was an amicus, uh, amicus brief, almost screwed it up again, uh, amicus brief that was filed by several economists, scientists, and medical professionals to address this argument specifically. And they point, pointed out that since legalization of abortion, Black women have experienced a 28 to 40 percent decline in maternal mortality thanks directly to the legalization of abortion, meaning the women who are carrying the fetus, they have seen a significant decline in their death rate. And while I understand that there are some people out there who don't, who are uncomfortable, who feel that abortion is is unseemly to them, that does not justify ignoring the death of people who are fundamentally have a right to live more so than the fetus because they actually have demonstrated life. Well, you know, uh, the right wing actually has a solution to that, Connor. You, they have a, they have a brilliant solution to it. They're going to throw women in jail who have miscarriages. Yeah. And I, that sounds like a joke, but it's actually happening. Yeah. Uh, you, there's a BBC article um, that I just read this morning where they detailed the stories of uh, four U.S. women who were actually convicted of like 
varying degrees of manslaughter or murder for having miscarriages. So the people that you're talking about now who are going to have to navigate our awful healthcare system and are going to experience complications and unwanted pregnancies, uh, they're going to go to jail for having uh, complications. You're going to see a rash of prosecutions across this country in right-wing uh, prosecutorial offices um, against women who either try to subvert this uh, because you can actually kind of subvert an abortion ban pretty, excuse me, subvert an abortion ban pretty easily. I used to be able to speak English, kids. I don't know what happened to me. But um, but also women who just experience complications as a result of our, our piss-poor healthcare system, excuse my language, uh, are going to go to jail. Uh, I, I say you can subvert this because uh, Brazil and El Salvador both uh, passed abortion bans and both famously have um, black markets in um abortion drugs, uh, plan B pills, and um, other methodologies of kind of subverting that ban. So people have figured that out, and they're probably going to figure that out here. I would say that in the next few months, you're going to see a lot of people downloading Tor browsers and surfing the dark web. Yes. Using Bitcoin yeah, that's supplies. the other side of things. Yeah. But the bad side of that, you know, like I've heard people celebrating that, like that there could be like, you know, an underground market in it. The bad side of that is that it's not going to be regulated. So you're forcing women to basically go on the dark web and purchase uh, something that they think is a safe drug from some lunatic who might or might not be selling them a legitimate uh, medical device or medical um, medical product instead of having safe and regulated abortion at an abortion clinic in this country, which we should basically have on demand. Well, and, and to add to that, a lot of these states, like a lot, the argument that a, a lot of people have made in response to my, me making the same point is that, well, these laws do provide a statutory exception. Like I mentioned with the Mississippi law for severe fetal abnormalities. The problem is there's a chilling effect when you make so many laws, um, basically like, restricting abortion ar around anything but that female abnormality th that uh, that fetal abnormality and so like a, mississippi for example it is one of the several states that has only one abortion clinic so if you're trying to get safe medication or a surgical abortion to save your life and you're on the other side of mississippi good luck well and then even on top of that you have the texas law that basically banned travel for abortion uh, and instituted like a bounty system where you could sue somebody for driving somebody to get an abortion or you could sue somebody for providing an abortion. So these these guys have kind of covered their bases. And if this sounds depressing to anybody who's listening, um, it kind of is. And I'm sorry that I can't give you more of like a silver lining to this really awful cloud. But this is going to be a really, really rough decision when it comes down for a lot of people. Like, I, like we've been saying, you're going to see a lot of mass prosecutions. You're going to see a civil right that women have had for like the last 50 years rolled back. And you're going to see other civil rights, uh, including uh, Griswold v. Connecticut uh, and Lawrence versus Texas and Obergefell. Uh, you're going to potentially see those rolled back too. There's absolutely nothing stopping Republican legislators now that this decision comes down uh, from basically denying people um, same-sex marriage certificates. Tennessee is already trying that because they're passing a bill that one, I'll be nice really again and say that accidentally completely legalized child marriage, but also created a separate type of marriage for heterosexual people that um, same-sex couples couldn't access. 
so these state legislatures we've allowed to metastasize for decades, um, and we've allowed this failed right-wing movement in our country to metastasize for decades, and now we're kind of reaping the whirlwind of pretending that we can compromise and have reasonable debates with Republicans over civil rights, because we're seeing a civil right be stripped away because we've allowed Republicans to have power for too long in this country. And and the thing that I, I, I'm hammering this point home over and over again because right. it, it really goes to the hollowness of the opposition, uh, if I'm going to put that in a nice way, uh, is that women, <laughs> women are going to die as a result of this. Yeah. Women are who are in the worst possible circumstances, who don't have access to uh, safe abortion pills or, or whatever they need to take care of themselves, are going to die because they're either going to be unable to access it safely or they're going to go back to the old cocktails that they used to take that were fundamentally poisonous to them and killed them. Well, you, you mentioned leadership and... I want to reverse this as soon as possible. I want to kind of go back to what we had for 50 years uh, and then try to build on that as soon as possible. But the leadership of the liberal movement in this country is not up to this moment. And I think no, I said that earlier. No, not at all. We have Nancy Pelosi right now who's campaigning to retain the one uh, anti-choice Democrat in the House right now. We have kind of allowed on the left uh, ourselves to be kind of saddled with this. Uh, I've heard the term feckless used a lot, and I'll use that instead of the word that I'd like to use because I'm on Connor's show and I'm being nice for the people. Yeah, this feckless leadership that has failed at every conceivable opportunity and every conceivable turn to restrain the rise of this failed right wing movement in our country. And we've allowed that. It's on me, it's on everybody uh, on the left, guys. And I, I, I'm really don't want to say that, but it's true. We've chosen to allow Nancy Pelosi to be Speaker of the House. We've chosen to allow Chuck Schumer to be uh, the majority leader in the Senate. We've chosen to have Joe Biden, who's a center-right candidate, be the President of the United States, and we're reaping the whirlwind. What we have to do in order to reverse this, and it's not going to happen overnight, because this leadership, let's be real, is not going to codify Roe. Um, Joe Manchin has already said that he's not going to vote for that, so it's just straight up not going to happen. Um, they're not going to pack the court in time to actually um, reverse this ruling. This ruling is going to come down. What we have to do is take a longitudinal view, and what we have to do is play the long game. Like I said earlier, we have to start building uh, judicial kind of pipelines for people to get into power who are going to reverse this and who are going to make actual uh, rulings that are consistent with the Constitution instead of some failed right-wing pie-in-the-sky ideology of some fantasy where they're having a, a spiritual communion with Thomas Jefferson, who told him to take away women's rights, which is basically what originalism is. Like, uh, it, it's insane. Uh, so we have to do that. And and what I'm seeing now is a lot of protesting, and I'm really happy that I'm seeing that, guys. Get out there, get loud, let them know that this is not consistent with American values because it isn't. So you do that. That's your first step. Your second step: register with your local Democratic Party. And I know that sounds chilly. So I'm sorry, but do it, go to the meetings and get loud there too, because you have people in those um, Democratic Party structures that are going to just let this pass or try to use it as a fundraising thing and they're not going to actually take action. What we have to do is we have to replace every one of these neoliberal, um, incompetent people who are not fighters from the ground up. And that's going to take a long time, guys. It's going to take 
years of fighting in your local party to get them out of office. It's going to take years of voting in primaries. It's going to take years of uh, getting congressional leadership out of their positions of power and replacing them with people who actually will fight for the American people. But we can and we will do this because the uh, alternative is to allow right-wingers to just roll back civil rights and continue to roll back civil rights because they will not just stop with abortion. They're going to come for Griswold. They're going to come for Lawrence. They're going to come for Loving. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's the one that I was going to bring up as well because like, yeah. I, I'd be interesting to see Clarence Thomas justify that one. I'm sure if you pay Ginny Thomas enough, he'd be very happy to do it. I mean, <laughs> no, yeah, you're honestly like for those unfamiliar with Loving v. Virginia, that's the case that basically struck down uh, interracial marriage uh, being prohibited by state law and made it completely unconstitutional to do so under the exact same section of the 14th Amendment that Roe v. Wade uh, used. So that's that's the other thing. And, and if you think that's not under attack, there was a Republican senator who came out fairly recently and said that it was inappropriate of the Supreme Court to make that decision that it should be allowed uh, to go back to states for uh, ratification. Yeah, yeah. And and that's like that, that again, over and over and over again is kind of the way that they approach uh, law. I, I this, is, this is where I think we really need to get into the, what I would say the racialization or the racist origins of uh, originalism. Because yeah. from my perspective, when I see originalists, and I, I one of my, professors had more originalist approaches to constitutional law, but he was also very firm on precedent. So I want to clarify, not all originalists uh, are <laughs> on with restrictions. Um, but originalism asserts that the constitution needs to be interpreted from the perspective of the framers who wrote the specific text. So when the, the first amendment was written, you're going to be looking at the constitutional convention, their notes, what they said at the time, what was their understanding of the first amendment should be 14th amendment, same thing when they were debating it in Congress, when there was passed, when it was ratified, what were they talking about? The problem with that is, and, and this was brought up multiple times, uh, by ProPublica and a couple of others is when you start appealing to the thought processes of those who came before you and their legal traditions, you also allow their prejudices to influence the legal system, which this society no longer, uh, at least in theory, sees as acceptable. And I think that's on particular display uh, in this in this uh, amicus. No, no, this, why do I keep saying that? You, you got it right. <laughs> yeah. No. I this opinion by Justice Alito, because he cites a man by the name of Hale multiple times. And <laughs> Hale was a uh, witch-burning, pro-marital rape judge from the 17th century. He wasn't even an American, so it's not even consistent with his uh, thing about American traditionalism. Yes. And, and, and that fundamentally is a problem because a lot of the rights which we enjoy in a modern society come from the 60s onward the push to change the way the government interacted with the people and to recognize that the states can be an oppressive authority, specifically on race and gender. Next time somebody argues with you about uh, packing the court, if that's a good idea or not, point out that one of the principal justices on the Supreme Court right now believes that we should be following the ideology of a 16th or a 17th century uh, witch-burning lunatic from England. And he thinks that he can commune with his spirit to uh, understand his intent. Because you're right, originalism 
is absurd. Like even the founders, if you read like the Federalist Papers, they assumed that the Constitution would be amended all the time and that we might have like a new one every like what, 15 or 20 years, I think one of them said. Jefferson, it was, I believe it was Jefferson's writing to uh, Madison where he was specifically talking about that the Constitution need to be uh, replaced every 19 years. Every 19 or 20 years, yeah. And <laughs> so like they didn't intend for their original intent to be like this all-consuming, all-governing thing. So the the very basis of originalism is absurd. The other thing is that, uh, have you ever heard of Wittgenstein's lion? It's like a philosophy concept. Um, I, I'm not a big philosopher. I'm political science, not the... So, so Wittgenstein's lion is this thing where um, if you taught a lion how to speak English, you still wouldn't be able to understand the lion because the lion's perspective is so divorced from your perspective that even though it's using the same language, you wouldn't understand what it's saying. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of apply that to like originalism where we live in 2022, where if I took Benjamin Franklin into my living room and showed him Netflix, he would scream for like 20 minutes and think that I was a witch. Or if, you know, I, I showed um, Thomas Jefferson uh, a jet airplane, he would think that, I don't know what he would think, he would probably hide. Uh, it, we're so divorced from that perspective uh, that it's 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 almost absurd to try to say that like well the founders intended this the founders intended that what it really is it's a cover for the arguments that they want to make anyway and they're just couching it in the founders would totally agree with me which is it, it's absurd almost to the level of like a fanfic like uh oh goku would totally agree with me and i'm going to write a 500 page brief about how how that's totally true that's basically what they're doing with originalism it, it's not constructive judicially uh, and it should be a red line. If, if somebody is one of these Clarence Thomas style originalists, it should be a red line for them getting any votes um, to be confirmed to the federal bench at this point. Well, and I also think that it fundamentally needs to be brought up that originalism is a relatively recent legal perspective because yeah. they that it was within the 20th century that originalism was first really established. And so for me, it's, it's, it seems to be a reaction against uh, the expansion of government power to protect the individual from the state and and really along racial and gendered lines, particularly as a reaction to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and all the things that came after it. It's really notable because you're right that the state right, this whole state rights movement, you know, going back to the Confederacy is, is a reaction against expanding uh, civil rights for people. With the Confederates, it was uh, against the abolition of slavery. With the Jim Crow states' rights people, it was trying to turn southern states into these, uh, they, they call it a laboratory of democracy. What it really is, is like a fortress of bigotry uh, to kind of impose their failed right-wing ideology without the intrusion of the uh, federal government kind of coming down and basically enforcing basic human rights for people that they don't like. And and to kind of hit on that, he the, the uh, amicus brief that I mentioned earlier, which talked about uh, African-American women particular, in particular uh, seeing their uh, maternal mortality decline significantly thanks to Roe. Uh, he, Justice Alito, his, in his opinion, he seems to just disregard the ability of legal scholars and scholars in general to be able to determine uh, the factual basis of like the implications of what they're ruling. And this is where I, I tweeted earlier that I was going to be a bit heretical when it comes to uh, legal jurisprudence. And that is, I don't think we should just be looking at precedent or what the justices said in Casey or Roe or any other case before that. We also have to be looking at the practical implications and how we rule. Because in the, in this case, 
what's going to end up happening is you're going to have a bunch of state legislatures who are going to take this, make bills that will eventually kill women on the basis of life. Uh, and that, to me, is itself a violation of the Constitution because the Eighth Amendment prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. Here, here's the thing, Connor. They are thinking in terms of the practical effects of uh, their rulings. And whereas we see it as monstrous, which I believe it objectively is, they see it as good. Like that's that's the thing that we kind of been, been pretending as a people for a very long time with this modern right wing movement is that we think that, oh, if they could just see how horrible their policies are, they would totally change their minds. They think the horrible parts of their policy are good. And we keep pretending like we can compromise and we can have a reasonable, rational discussion with these people and that they're they're just uh, slightly you know, incorrect. And if they just see our, our facts, they'll come around. This is a movement that's rooted in cruelty, in oppression, in maintaining structures of patriarchy and white, uh, white supremacy, which we've been talking about. This is a movement that will not compromise, that has spent 50 years not compromising on their stance that abortion should be banned. And that if we keep coddling it and pretending like they have a valid point, we're just compromising on basic human rights with these people. It's time to stop compromising. It's time to draw a red line in the sand where we will not put people in public office who don't want to defend a woman's rights to choose. We will not uh, support any just, justice for any level of the federal bench that holds these absurd uh, ideologies. We will not uh, have a polite conversation with somebody who wants to throw women in jail for having miscarriages. We will politically, politically, note I'm saying politically, nonviolently, uh, remove these people from power, period. That has to be our long-term project. There shouldn't be a single Republican uh, a party member in office in any capacity anywhere in the country. If you have an elected dog catcher, don't elect a Republican. Make it your mission to not elect the Republican as dog catcher. He's probably kicking the dogs. Let's be real. <laughs> From everything that we know about the Republicans. Uh, it, it, we, have, um, we have a senator uh, right now in the Democratic Party, Joe Manchin, um, who actually voted positively for the uh, confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. It's time to make an example of these kinds of people in the Democratic Party. That guy should face some serious political consequences for that. Instead, we have a leadership that's keeping him on committees and pretending like he's a valuable member of the party and that he has a valuable perspective. It's it's time to start whipping votes. It's time to start uh, enforcing red lines. It's time to start having litmus tests for our leadership because having this kind of feckless leadership has gotten us into this position and it's time to do something that'll get us out of it. And maybe I'm just really angry right now uh, because I'm seeing people's civil rights be violated and I'm embarrassed and humiliated that uh, I wore the uniform of this country overseas and that we're enforcing laws against women that are more strict than Islamic theocracies that I was told that we're trying to destroy our freedoms. But it's time to get really serious about defeating this movement and undoing the damage that they've done. And it just so happens that this is a profound uh, amount of damage that they've done with this decision. And it's going to take years to roll it back, but we have to get started immediately. Absolutely. And, and I would just also add that, uh, that I know since I brought it up earlier, there are going to be some individuals, people whom I'm friends with, including, uh, who will argue it's not a good Catholic thing to oppose this. But I, from my perspective, it seems that the Republican Party as a political party only brings this up 
because they fundamentally want to criminalize all these other protections, which violate the very principle of a universally uh, dignified human race. Yes. Um, and so for me, I, I, I understand why some people are out there who believe that, you know, they have a moral obligation to worry about abortion, but you don't, to those people, you don't have to take the most extreme response and hurt people while you're trying to do what you think is right. You don't have to throw your, your, your morals in with the most cruel, vicious, homophobic, and sexist people in politics today. Because they're not just coming for abortion after this. They're coming for everything. And, and if you want to be a good Catholic and prevent abortions, uh, expand access to contraception, which I know someone's going to tell me that's not a good Catholic thing, but whatever. Uh, I expand, before my opinion, the whole anti... Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, expand access to contraception and abstinence-only sex education um, and expand resources uh, for people who are pregnant who need help. Uh, that's how you witness as a good Christian. You you help people who are in need. The How you don't witness as a Christian is you don't use the cudgel of the state to hurt people who are making decisions you disagree with. Uh, that's that's not how this works anymore. Uh, you know, I, you know, and I say that as, as somebody who grew up Catholic, and I know we had the Inquisition, but that was that was then. We don't do that anymore. We don't have the Inquisition anymore. We're supposed to be good, loving Christians who minister to our brothers and sisters who are in need, not uh, people who use the cudgel of power uh, to come down on people that we don't like. And I would also add that it is, it is part of honest belief, and I didn't mean to get on this religious element because Sorry. I rarely talk about religion publicly. No, that's not your fault. It's my fault. Uh, is, is, is that fundamentally there is a, a decision of freedom of conscience. And so long as our religious dogma, whether it's on abortion or any other issue, is put into law at, as the cudgel at the state, we are violating that very principle. Because instead of letting people decide their own path, we are taking it for them while claiming we are saving them. And as we've been talking about throughout this, uh, this podcast, that is just not the case. It's not. And, you know, it, speaking of freedom of conscience, is, I, I think you're going to see a lot of people um, use their freedom of conscience to continue providing basic health care services to women. And I'm not a legal scholar, nor am I a lawyer at this point, but uh, I don't believe it's illegal to post online information about how certain drugs work and how to acquire them. I'm going to put that out there hypothetically for a friend in Roblox in, in mm -hmm. Minecraft. Uh, but yeah, we're one of the ways that we're going to have to overcome this is um, sticking close to our conscience and putting ourselves on the line to defy um, this intrusion upon our civil rights. And that's going to mean, uh, you know, kind of putting ourselves at risk in some cases. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm a very white guy, uh, even though I'm a disembodied voice on the internet. And it, it means putting myself at risk because I know that uh, one, it's my moral obligation to always fight for the rights of uh, the downtrodden Two, an assault against one is an assault against all in terms of civil liberties. And three, it's inconsistent with my values as an American to see um, patriarchal control of women's bodies established by an unelected, uh, unaccountable Supreme Court. All right. Are there anything anything else you'd like to add? Or uh, Oh, yeah. One thing, we didn't discuss the actual fact that this leaked and that it's a big deal that it's leaked. I oh, personally... Yes. I personally could not care less that it leaked. In fact, 
the way the Supreme Court is unaccountable and unelected, uh, I want to see their text messages. I want to see their emails. I want their deliberations to be taped and broadcast on um, on Twitch. I want to see uh, Kavanaugh's secret Tinder profile that we all know he has in DC. <laughs> I want dailies from somebody posted this on my Twitter. Uh, and I think it's the uh, the Ultraviolet podcast. He's a cool guy. You should subscribe to if you're not listening to him. But uh, he oh, said, I want to see dailies from these losers. Like it's Les Grossman from Tropic Thunder. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't care about the leaks. And if anything, I think they should be made more public. So whoever leaked it is probably a hero. Um, unless it's a right-wing uh, clerk who leaked it to try to lock in votes. And even then, they're an accidental hero. So good job, whatever clerk did that. And I would also point out that the selective uh, concern about that is uh, just ahistorical because Roe was leaked as well. So yeah. it's it's not it's not new. Um, but overall, I think we we really need to remind everybody that this is fundamentally a matter of a lot of women go are going to be seriously hurt because yeah. their choices were taken from them by three justices. And I'm saying three because if they weren't on there, this wouldn't be an issue. Um, but all the other justices as well who were involved uh, by a series of justices, many of whom who perjured themselves on this very case. Uh, yeah. And so if you know or know people in your local community that can help or protest or do anything you can to put pressure on the structures of power, even if it takes 20 or 30 years to change this, it's time to start now. Exactly. All righty. Uh, are there any other things you'd like to mention before we go? Oh, no, that's it. Uh, uh, get get angry, get, get loud, and get involved in your local party politics uh, because this is going to be a long, long fight, and we've got to get started as soon as possible. Absolutely. Power is not a given, it's taken. Thanks, everybody. Thank you very much for watching. Feel free to like, share, and subscribe. It is the easiest way to support the channel, and if you enjoyed the video, feel free to leave a comment below. Thanks again for watching, and I look forward to making more videos for you guys in the future.